Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Inner voice. My name is Anna Marie Cox. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner. And I did not say this. I am not here. This is Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of political science and Habermasian discourse. We're doing a bunch of fun stuff next, including Reminiscence with Hugh Jackman, Lawrence Wright's The End of October, which, by the way, will mark the end of hot sci-fi summer and back to our normal sort of diet of some, you know, dystopian stuff as well Mm -hmm. as some fun stuff. We are also doing the Fantasy Island reboot, which I assume will be fun. It will be fun. Yes. 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 Okay. You should become a patron if you enjoy this kind of thing. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash space the nation. There are lots of cool benefits, including merch and our discord, which we talk up a lot, but that's only because it's so cool. Mm -hmm. They do watch parties. They talk about their day jobs. There is an adorables channel. You also could just tell your friends and neighbors about this podcast. We love it that you're here. We would like to have more here. We do want Why, more. Why, Dan? Fans. Why would we want more people? We here? would like more fans, first of all, because we think it's a great community and we think adding to it will just make it that much greater a community. Also, if our community gets to at least 250 patrons, and we are more than halfway there at this point, we will do a special patrons-only episode on a topic chosen by said patrons, much like we did when we hit 100 patrons. So please, you know, tell your friends, hopefully join, and we uh, look forward to that at some point in the future. Oh, there's AMAs too, Dan. Dan, There are AMAs. You also obviously get early access to the actual uh, podcast episodes, so... uh, And some special editions of the podcast as well. Yes, we have occasionally... We have fun stuff planned, basically. But what do we have planned today? Today we are doing David Lynch's version of the movie Dune, which came out in 1984. You might wonder, why are we doing David Lynch's (laughs) Dune? Why? Why why did I have to watch this movie? uh, (laughs) I'm glad you asked, because after watching it, it's, it's a fair question to ask. So we all know that Denise Villeneuve's Dune is coming out in October. The trailer looks amazing, and duh, we're obviously going to do an episode on that. But until then, we should talk about the previous effort to make a big-budget spectacle of Frank Herbert's novel. Also, as I started watching this film and thinking about the bizarre combination of David Lynch and a big-budget sci-fi movie, I confess that I could not shake this totally fictional conversation carried out in the 1980s using old-time Hollywood newsreel voices. Anna, if you would mind joining me. Uh, I would not mind. Okay. This novel is sensational! We have to film it! But who can we get to do buffo box office? Well, what about David Lynch? The guy who made the elephant man and eraser head? You're a genius, Anna! We're gonna be rich! <laughs> you know, Dan, I, I want to elaborate just a little on uh, <laughs> uh, that conversation. Oh, good. Okay, yes, go ahead. So let's let's do that again. I have a, I have a little script for us as well. Excellent. I will be Studio Executive 1 in, yes. in this. Yes, okay, good. Uh, and you can be Studio Executive 2. Okay, ready? Okay. Hey, this book has a lot of technical detail and complicated character motivations. Did we think of that when we asked an atmospheric and obscure director to make it? No, we did not. How can we make sure audiences understand what's going on? Uh, let's create an entire second script that the actors will record as the character's inner voice. Won't that be heavy-handed and weird? Have you seen the Baron Harkonnen character, my friend? <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all I have to say. We could start And there, see. Really. There we go. <laughs> and see. Now, Dan, because I was driving across the country, I asked you to look up the story behind the story of this movie. There is a rather lengthy one, but if you wouldn't mind... Hitting the highlights. I would not mind uh, at all because the actual story is only slightly less bonkers than the script we just said. And also, <laughs> it is frankly much more entertaining than the film itself, I would argue. <laughs> so it also potentially offers a harbinger for why there are legitimate doubts about whether a director even like Denise Villeneuve can actually turn this into an entertaining film. Mm-hmm. So this movie was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, a very famous 1980s style big budget Schlockmeister. But before uh, he got the script, there were two other producers who had optioned the film rights and yet failed to make the movie. The second of these two efforts by Alejandro Jodorowsky is legendary in Hollywood because he had some truly awe-inspiring ideas for casting this film. So he wanted to cast as the Emperor Salvador Dali. He wanted Orson Welles to play Baron Harkonnen. As Fade Routha, he wanted Mick Jagger. He wanted David Carradine to play Duke Leo, Leto Atreides. And on the other hand, he wanted his own son, Brontus Jodorowsky, as Paul Atreides. So, you know, slightly dicey. Maybe mixed, but I have to say, Orson Welles as Harkonnen. Would have been genius. Yes, that would have been a good move. 
Yes. Yes. No, no, I mean, he did. I mean, Wells sort of phoned it in towards the end there, but I think he might have. He might have. Might have enjoyed. It would have been fascinating. Interestingly enough, I think Wells actually did his last film performance also in 1984, but it was as the voice of Omicron in Transformers the movie, a film that we will have to do at some point down the pike. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about this uh, Jodorowsky. Yes. Because I, I know there's a story. It never got off the ground. However, among other people that he contracted to participate in the film were H.R. Geiger and Dan O'Bannon. Uh, they were supposed to do the visual effects. And we all know where they wound up. They wound up playing a significant role in the development of Alien. So... That did not happen. There is apparently a great documentary about this called Jodorowsky's Dune. Anna, have Mm -hmm. you seen this? Yes, I have. And I probably should have remembered that before I asked you to do the story behind the story. (laughs) But I was driving cross country. Lots going on. Um, And you have done a great job so far. I know you have a little more to tell us. Oh, thank you. De Laurentiis got the rights, um, initially kept Geiger, and wanted friend of the podcast, Ridley Scott, to direct, which would have been a really interesting choice. And Scott wanted to divide the book into two films, which, interestingly enough, Villeneuve is intending to do. So that actually is a, a good sign. And based his script in part, he was inspired by a film called The Battle of Algiers, which is widely acknowledged to be one of the best films about combat actually put on film, um, and particular guerrilla warfare ever put on film. So it's a good inspiration. He left, however, to go direct a small little film called Blade Runner. And we are all the richer for it. So it was Dino's daughter, the producer Rafaela De Laurentiis, who apparently thought of Lynch as the director. Now, again, this sounds super odd in retrospect, (laughs) because nothing else in Lynch's oeuvre would suggest, yeah, give him a big budget sci-fi film. But in defense of Rafaela, it should be noted that Lynch was also at the same time being offered to direct Return of the Jedi. They were all like crazed out of their minds on coke we should remember this they were like (laughs) skying on rails of coke that is the the only explanation i have because i again (laughs) i I don't deny elephant man and eraserhead are good films but what would have made you see those films and think oh yeah i know what would have made you see those films and think oh yeah rails of coke kilos and kilos of cocaine (laughs) lots of cocaine lots of cocaine and i think that's really i mean i just think that's the only explanation and because you know it's like you know what we should do you know we should do that's what we should have done (laughs) script oh my god oh my god okay okay do you know david lynch david david lynch eraser eraser head eraser head eraser head you know him him oh my god oh my god oh my god anna that's genius that's genius oh we are gonna make so much money write this down someone write this down Oh my god, that's so amazing. <laughs> I think we have stumbled upon the more accurate version yeah, of how those conversations conversation. went. <laughs> oh god. We're all such geniuses. Okay. Uh, anyway, Lynch did say yes and agreed to direct the film, even though, according to all accounts, he had not read the book, known about the story, or ever, frankly, been interested in science fiction. That remains true to this day. Uh, he was interviewed uh, last year about seeing stills from uh, the Villeneuve shoot, and he expressed zero interest. He said, this is a direct quote, it was a failure and I didn't have final cut. I've told the story a billion times. It's not the film I wanted to make. <laughs> Which I can... It's not the film anyone wanted to make, really. <laughs> yes, that's very true. <laughs> Lynch's script would have had it led to a three-hour film, and apparently his initial rough cut was about four hours. Producers cut a lot and added several components, including Virginia Madsen, who plays the daughter of the emperor, her sort of opening explanation, sort of exposition. <laughs> Shockingly, upon... Which yeah. doesn't, I mean... Anyway. It's actually it's unnecessary, little, yes. It, it's completely unnecessary. It, it is... The first sign we have in this movie, which I do want to talk about more, of the complete lack of confidence (laughs) the filmmakers have in the audience. Yeah. Just the the, the incredible condescension, which, again, might be the cocaine. Although Lynch, I I gather, is pretty straight edge. No, Lynch is is actually really, yeah. In his personal life, Lynch is, I believe, extremely uh, straight arrow-like. But yeah, and and shockingly, you know, it props to the audience. The film was a commercial and critical dud. It never made back its initial budget, which was enormous. And generally speaking, is weirdly, I think there are people now trying to resurrect it as like an unacknowledged classic. And I want to know who these people are and how many rails of coke (laughs) they have done. Yeah, you know, sometimes you go to see a film that you know a little bit of the backstory of, like you know that the studio has messed with it. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see the film it might have been, yeah. you know, on the screen. Right. This was not And that see film. the better version. And this is not that. No. no. I-, I think you see everything on the screen that <laughs> was put there 
and it's bad. <laughs> it's just really bad. There were things we both liked about it. But, yes. But they are small things. And yeah, like, and we've done enough films in this podcast to recognize, first of all, sometimes studio interventions are a good thing. Sometimes studios actually Alien. do. Yes. Very, very, very good. They point. actually Alien. make a film better. And sometimes you're right. The director is brilliant. The, the studio messed with it. But you can see where the director was going. I have no fucking clue after watching this film what Lynch actually wanted to do. It's tempting to say he didn't know where he was going. Yeah. And, that would explain something. And I will I will add this. This is where I think Lynch not reading the books actually served him poorly. Because if he had actually read the first two novels, I suspect he would have really liked the story. Because the story in some ways is Lynch's very favorite sort of metaphor in most of the rest of his films, which is a Mobius loop, in which, you know, there is a rebel who rises, winds up ruling the galaxy, and then winds up being as bad as the dictator he's overthrown. I bet Lynch would have actually been interested in that, but by not reading, he did, he didn't do the work. And uh, he's also really into the corruption of families. Yeah, that's true. You know, he, he likes to see how family lineage gets corrupted over time and sort of doubles back on itself, mm-hmm. and I, I think he would have appreciated that. And yeah, I think that... <laughs> It's just weird because you can see everything they tried to do. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to say about, like, it's not that there's anything missing from this film, really. I mean, I know they cut some, but right. there's never a feel that there's something missing. You can see they spent a ton of money on the visual effects. Well, there are things... They're, they're not very good, right. but they, it's, they somehow scream, we spent money yeah. on this at the same time that they're not very good. I want to be clear. There are things missing from the film, but a budget oh, is okay. not one of them. <laughs> Yes. You never got right. the, you know, I, let me this way, you, you were correct in the sense of when watching the film, I never got the sense of, oh, this is a, this is cheesy. They could have shot it with more money this other way. Right, no, right, right. They, they shot everything exactly as they wanted to, and it's still a little cheesy. Well, we should probably talk about the plot. It is a little different yes. um, from the books. And this is one of the few times I'm going to tell listeners, don't bother watching. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> Like, you might enjoy this this episode a tiny bit more if you watch the movie. But, I, I mean, Dan, do you agree with me? This is, like, one of the ones you can probably skip. Yeah, I'm going to say this is... Let me put this way. This is a film you can watch while you're folding laundry. Or, like... Doing taxes. Yeah, oh, God. I mean, like, it requires no attention. Yes, just, that's Because it's just dumb. It's bad. Um, yeah. It has some good creatures. I was going to say that for later when we talk we about, will talk about, talk that about in a bit. Yeah. the good stuff. Yeah. There's some interesting visuals. And uh, all the variations of uh, hamminess in the voices you know, might, might make a good background to something yes. like, you know, quarterly taxes. But let's get to the plot. So yeah, Act plots. 1, a beginning is a very delicate time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the year 10,191, according to Princess Irulan, played by Virginia Madsen. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. The whole galactic economy runs on the spice melange. The spice is only found on the planet Arrakis. The Emperor and the Spacing Guild meet, during which the Emperor tells the Guild his plans for House Atreides to take over Arrakis, after which House Harkonnen will attack with the Emperor's elite Sardaukar forces. The Guild is perfectly down with this plan, but the one thing they ask for is for the Duke's son, Paul, to be killed in the attack. Paul Atreides, meanwhile, is the son of a Duke, played by Kyle MacLachlan in his first performance on screen. The son of a duke and a concubine, Jessica, who is a member of the Bene Gesserit, they are moving to Arrakis from the much more watery planet Caladan. Before they depart, Paul is tested by the Reverend Mother because it is believed that he might be the fulfillment of a prophecy. Paul passes the Gamjabar test. This is not surprising as he has been trained in the ways of the Bene Gesserit by his mum, Jessica. Meanwhile, Baron Harkonnen laughs his maniacal laugh and discusses his plans with his younger relatives, <laughs> including the villainous Fade, played by Sting. Anna, when we talked about Frank Herbert's book originally, we both noted the unfortunate trope of the bad guy being bloated and gay. And I wasn't thrilled with it, but it was sort of relatively easy to sort of skip past that in the book. The problem with Lynch's adaptation is that it makes that stereotype all too uncomfortably visible. It's so grotesque. Yeah. That it's almost sublime (laughs) like it is so disgusting and again i guess i'll have to for those of you who don't bother to watch um not only is he grossly fat Mm -hmm. but he has skin sores all over his face that we get loving close-ups pustules i would say would be the pustules that um doctors like pull pus out of if you're the kind of person you like dr pimple popper (laughs) 
maybe this is going to be okay for you. I had flashbacks to my adolescent years when my acne was bad. And yes, this is, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, and you were like, well, whew, yes, you know, it couldn't be like, that bad, at least. Yes, it, it yes. couldn't be that bad. It is one of those cases that with maybe some other luck in the movie, it would be just so over the top that it's almost right good. But instead, it's just gross. Yeah. It's just incredibly gross. And Sting is in some of those scenes, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> yes. I, so, Anna, you and I are in agreement that I would not have expected this going in. The single best thing in this film is Sting. Oh, yeah, totally. He's, he, like, and he's, he's perfect. Yes, he really is. He is somehow perfect. Oh, I want to add one more thing, which is the choice to make all of the Harkonnens redheads <laughs> is, is personally offensive. Oh. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> and also, they have that weird reverse mohawk haircut, most of them. I guess. Like, there's a, a stripe shaved into their head. Yeah, I don't okay. know. I mean... This movie has so much going on in it. It really does. Like, it is distracting in part because the script and the plot, you're kind of like, oh, there must be other stuff to pay attention to. And there's lots of shit happening in the background. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the pugs at some point. (laughs) Yes, we'll get to the pugs. I also want to talk about the beer hats that people were wearing. Like, the hats with the baseball cap, we put a beer in either side in the the straw. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Swear to God, there were some soldiers wearing helmets I assume it was supposed to be some kind of water thing. But there's so much going on. Yes. You see all the stuff they put in it, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. Like, you know, a, a cult classic often has that same trademark. Like, you've said this about that movie I hated. Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah. And I, I think even most of Lynch's movies have that. They mm-hmm. have, like, little details in the background. But I don't think you're supposed to notice all of them. Certainly not at the first time you watch it, yes. And also, it shouldn't yeah. inspire... Those details should be something you notice upon multiple viewings where you're like, oh, that's interesting, as opposed to, what the fuck was that thing there? Yeah, like, exactly. that makes no sense. Like, there's a difference between interesting details and details that are non sequiturs to the point where they take you out of the film. Because, like you. The, the pugs, I'm going to say right. just. The, the pugs, pugs, the beer hats, <laughs> the, the hazmat suits that some of the soldiers wear, which makes no sense as well. Listeners, I am shrugging my shoulders and throwing up my hands. So, like, it is such a bizarre movie. I want to say one thing, yeah, yeah. though, which is you mentioned before we started recording. Yeah. And you didn't mention this particular uh, section of the plot, which is the plot makes more sense. Yes. I, the movie plot does make more sense. Yes. Because he's given their motivations and explanations. I know you, you really hated the whole, like, it's a trap right. about Arrakis. Because it wasn't really a trap. It was not explained. This is actually... No, actually, and I assume this, I will credit this to Lynch. One of the better scenes that I liked is actually the very first scene in the film where you see the Emperor meet with the Spacing Guild, which is not in the book. First of all, the Spacing Guild is weird, and it's weird in a useful Lynchian way of weird. Like, Mm -hmm. those are legitimately aliens, and and it's, like, fascinating to watch. And still looks really cool and Lynchian today. And furthermore, this is where the exposition actually is useful. The Emperor explains that he is legitimately worried about the Duke because the Duke has apparently developed a new way of warfare and is therefore concerned about, you know, a, a threat posed by the Duke and that he will solve this by basically making the Duke go to Arrakis and it'll be a trap and so on and so forth. It was actually relatively well explained and, and yes, much clearer than in the book itself. So I just want to say about the warfare technique <laughs> that apparently the Emperor wants to acquire. Mm-hmm. It, it, quote, has something to do with sound. <laughs> <laughs> you know that what? That is the explanation given by the Emperor. Anna, that is an a- training a new fair, army. That's an accurate explanation. It has something and to do with sound. And it's as silly as it sounds. <laughs> Yes. The other thing, this isn't a huge deal, but like, uh, probably not surprising in the 80s, but it was weird that they cast Dean Stockwell as Wellington Yue. It was a character clearly designed to be Asian, and they had Stockwell play him with a Fu Manchu mustache almost. It was, it was, mm-hmm. again, it was one of those things where it was just uncomfortable to see. And, you know. Yes. I mean, also because he doesn't really get to do Dean Stockwell shit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, he, he could, and obviously, like, it's interesting to see these two Lynch actors perform in a way that is not reminiscent of how they are in Lynch movies. Yeah. No, and that's a, that's a fair point because there are other Lynchian actors that will, will make appearances and it's, but they're not acting like the way they would in a normal David Lynch film. It's a very, which I think also might actually be one of the things that's alienating about it. And now let us get to act two, Crisis on Thirst Trap Planet Zero. 
So the Duke Leto arrives on Arrakis with his entourage. The Duke tries to build alliances with the spice smugglers and learn more about the Fremen, which are apparently a threat to spice production. Alas, before he gets too far, the traitorous Dr. Yue sabotages the shield to allow Harkonnen and Sardaukar troops into the Duke's redoubt. Yue does arrange for Jessica and Paul to escape into the desert on the condition that the Duke use a poison tooth to kill Baron Harkonnen when he's in Harkonnen's presence. The Duke attempts this, but kills only himself and the Baron's mentat, or military advisor. Paul and Jessica do escape to the desert, which is treacherous territory. Water is everything, and oh yeah, there are giant sandworms prowling about. Plus, Jessica is pregnant, a fact that Paul intuits, as the spice appears to be enhancing his considerable mental gifts. Paul and Jessica are saved by a Fremen tribe, and Paul proves his fighting and leadership medal and wins the trust of the Fremen. Anna, some of the choices made in this film are weird, like... <laughs> which might be the understatement mm. of the podcast. Mm. So... <laughs> they actually use the word jihad, which is in the book and a yeah. genuinely interesting aspect of, of the book. And yet when we meet the Fremen's holy warriors, they're holding crosses. What the fuck? Yeah. You know, again, this movie is somehow less than the sum of its weird choices. <laughs> like, I feel like we're going to harp on this, but I also feel like it's important not to crack, which is what is the difference between a, the good, bad movie where the strangeness of it becomes enjoyable? Right. Like Reign of Fire. You know, where, like Reign of Fire. It was really interesting to watch this after Reign of Fire. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously completely different movies, mm-hmm. but they both... I will. They have one thing in common, which is I believe they are earnest. Yes. Both of them are very earnest movies. Like Reign of Fire... You know, I think we said this in the podcast. Whatever you say about the movie, Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale are going for it. <laughs> yes. They are doing their thing in this movie, and it is with complete, you know, dedication, like complete earnestness. And this movie is incredibly earnest too, mm-hmm. but it just feels sad and weird, you know? I, I will say one so one obvious difference is that Reign of Fire, as gonzo as it is, is actually almost elemental in the plot. It's a very simple plot. Whereas this film, because it's based on this book, there are ways in which you could make the plot simple, but there's a lot of moving parts in this film. And there are characters are important in the book that in the film are sort of, they're there because they have to be there, but we Mm -hmm. know almost nothing about them. The great character actor Richard Jordan is in this film as, he's not Gurney Howe, he's Duncan Idaho. Yeah. It's an important role. In- Gurney is played by... Gurney is played by Patrick Stewart. We will be talking about Patrick Stewart a little bit later. <laughs> but Richard Jordan is a good character actor. He was fantastic in The Secret of My Success and The Hunt for Red October. He's given nothing to do in this film. Absolutely nothing. And really did not even have to be in the film. I assume the only reason he's there is because someone said, no, 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 he's in the book. He's got to be in the film. And that's, I think, one of the issues. That might, that might be why this is less than some of the parts as opposed to an original script like we saw with Reign of Fire. And I could list all of the weird choices. <laughs> I think we'd be here for a long time. Yeah, that'd be that'd be longer uh, than David Lynch's original script. Yeah, I think I'll comment on some of them as we get to them in the plot. Here, I'll, I'll just say on the grossness factor, just because, again, it's one of those things that draws your attention away, mm-hmm. which is the doctors to Harkonnen have weird body modifications. Mm-hmm. And it's just... Grow. It's it's just upsetting. <laughs> like, and I mean, part of me wonders: was Lynch seduced by the budget in some way? Hmm. You know, like did he feel like, oh, I can do anything? And then this is again almost an argument for studio stepping in, right? Yeah. Like maybe the one thing they didn't mess with in terms of the movie was the budget. Like they thought the bigger the better, right? And so he had this money to do all this fucking bizarre curly cues around the edges and he just went for it and no one said no i guess although i mean the weird thing is is that lynch can be truly weird without a big budget and i agree yeah, no yeah. i agree i'm saying that the budgets might have spoiled him. yeah I'm that's possible like, yeah he he has like these fantastic ideas this was the only and, big budget I mean, fantastic in the fantastical way yeah. he has these fantastical ideas and usually he has to maybe pull them back a little bit in order to be able to pull them off because of whatever limitations he has. 
Like Eraserhead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Eraserhead's a low-budget movie that's incredibly weird. Would probably be not as good if he had a ton of money to make it. Right. I would say. And it is so interesting that this is the movie that got made by the people who went on to do Alien, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's the opposite direction of, you know, studio uh, interference, right? It's it's the case of some, it's just enough studio interference to make the movie worse, even yeah. worse. But, um, I, but not enough to, to make it better. Right, but I th- let me put it this way. It's not that I think what the studio did in terms of its interference made a ton of sense, but in their defense... If I was a studio exec and I had seen what Lynch was doing, I too would have been concerned because, again, this is not a case where the director's original vision would have been that compelling either. I would have been concerned too. I don't know if inner voice is like the solution. <laughs> yes. Okay. I agree to that. I, that's my that's my thing. Is like I, the, that's the rails of coke talking yeah. where you're like, I don't care about the body modified doctors. But I am going to, because that makes no fucking sense at all, but I am going to like make everybody record a whole second script. (laughs) I really do believe that half of the movie is spoken as interior monologue, a lot of which is completely superfluous. I'm not going to disagree. I believe one of the lines that that Paul has is something about the spice. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) <laughs> Let me put it this way. This, this is where, again, I am disapp- I'm disappointed in the studio, but I'm also disappointed in Lynch because oh, of course. there are elements of this film that should have been in his wheelhouse. There are visions. There are dreams. There are, you know, bizarre mental connections between different actors. That's his wheelhouse. That is the stuff that, like, in Mulholland Drive or Twin Peaks is in some ways produces the most compelling stuff. And yet it's just yeah. leaden here. There's nothing. And so that was yeah, surprised. Yeah, like, uh, Imagine him using some of that trippy vision stuff mm-hmm. with Paul. Right, exactly. Because the way that his visions are described in the book is actually one of the tricks that Herbert pulls off, mm-hmm. I think. Like that description, it's so good. Thinking about it in retrospect, I'm even more impressed with him because it's so hard to describe interior you know right. uh, dialogue yeah. revelations right. yeah. it's, it's hard to describe what it feels like mm-hmm. to be thinking but he does that thing about time being like an ocean mm-hmm. where you can see maybe then you can see something and then a wave comes up and you can't see over the wave and it's such a great way of talking about this paradox of future right. vision mm-hmm. and imagine lynch taking that on that would have been interesting. I think we're in agreement that David Lynch could have made an interesting film. But I think oh, yeah. we are in agreement that even absent the studio, he did not make an interesting film. Agreed. Yes, yes we are in agreement. Let's keep going. All right. <laughs> Act three. I hate sand. It's coarse. Uh, <laughs> so Paul takes the Fremen name Muad'Dib, which means mouse. He also marries Chani, a Fremen woman that he saw in his prophecies. Jessica agrees to become the Fremen's reverend mother by drinking the water of life. This has a profound effect on her unborn daughter, Aaliyah, who winds up being super precocious. Meanwhile, the Baron appoints his idiot nephew, Raban, to run Arrakis with the idea that he'll be loathed, and then the Baron can replace him with the more swole Fade Rautha, uh, as played by Sting. I'm not kidding about the swole thing. There is a moment where you see Sting wearing nothing but what I would... The winged codpiece. Yes, and... The, the famous winged codpiece, and I... It's... It's a thing of beauty. The boy really looks is. good. Not the codpiece so much, but yeah. Sting pulls it off. Yes. I mean, again... Like, he, this is Sting at the peak of his power, is the way I would put it. It, yes, is. Yes, it yes. is. It is. Paul learns that the Fremen can partially control the sandworms, are more numerous than anyone realizes, and have strategic reserves of water underground. Paul, in turn, teaches the Fremen, already a potent fighting force, the weirding ways of battle. To assume leadership, he learns how to ride a sandworm. His forces then launch a guerrilla campaign to destroy all spice mining on Arrakis. <laughs> Maybe this is a turn, by the way, that... Does it make so much yeah, sense? I, I mean, he talks about that in the book, but it's a last-ditch thing. Right, right. It's it's like his threat. Yeah. And pulling it in now is like, what? Wait? It's what? a little early. But yeah. along the way, he also reconnects with Gurney Halleck, played by Patrick Stewart. Uh, the Spacing Guild shows up to see the Emperor and warns him that matters on Arrakis are going badly and that he needs to deal with the situation. 
Shaddam decides on genocide. He actually says it out loud. He says genocide. <laughs> uh, Paul senses that the Spacing Guild wants him dead because he could be the Kwisatz Haderach, which is the chosen one that is talked about in the B'nai Gesserit mythology. So he drinks the water of life in full view of everyone, has a vision of how the worms and the spice are part of the same ecosystem. Anna, a lot of good actors are wasted in this film. There's just no other way to put it. But I will note two exceptions. First, only Patrick Stewart could have sold the line, you young pup, when he sees Paul again for the first time in, in years. And again, we've said this before, but surprisingly, Sting is just fucking fantastic as Fade Routha, given that the part is so underwritten. It really is. All he, has to, yeah. he does a lot with just standing there. Yes, basically. and sneering. He, he like, really does sneer. Yes, he does. Patrick Stewart, I guess this is where I'm going to talk about the pugs some more. <laughs> because, because, again, it's a movie where you notice the shit that's in the background. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I'm, you know, I just got my dog back. So I'm thinking about dogs. Yes. And it was National and Dog Day recently. It was National Dog Day. Yeah. True. And so there's a scene in the very first scene where for some reason they're emptying out the emperor's main room, which I guess because the Spicing Guild is coming. Yes, that's correct. But someone walks by holding like a a leash attached to like 10 pugs (laughs) it's like a litter Mm -hmm. of pugs then that's just like oh well okay like you know royalty have in the past had pets yes think of it as the corgis of the dune universe yes exactly then a pug shows up in the atreides household more than one and in fact when the atreides family gets into the spaceship to go to arrakis Mm -hmm. paul is holding a pug in his lap (laughs) It's actually explicitly said in the book that there are no pets on Arrakis, and you can understand why. Yes, because water is extremely <laughs> scarce. So part of me is like, oh, maybe, I don't know, what, there's something <laughs> going on. The pug makes several more cameos. Most notably, when the Atreides readout is attacked by the Harkonnens, and uh, Gurney Halleck does a gonzo, almost what we assume might be a suicide kind of attack. Right. They show the Atreides forces, you know, geared up, ready to launch into this force that is so much more than theirs. Mm -hmm. And he's holding a rifle and a (laughs) (laughs) Not kidding. This is a podcast. In fact, it looks uncomfortable. Like, he's having, because he can't really hold the gun right, because he's got the pug in his arms. (laughs) Listeners, this is a podcast, so obviously we lack visuals, but I, I, I'm looking at Anna as she's describing this, and her face really does would say a thousand words in terms of like just the, the disbelief. <laughs> and I'm trying to do the thing with yes, my arms, yes. like trying to like, how would you do that? Like hold a pug and, and then also hold like, a, obviously like a rifle, but it's some sort of long gun, some space future. It would be gun. safe to say the pug and is not something, something convenient like, to carry, yes. He's, no, and he says something like, House of Trade, you know, he does, says some rallying cry. And friends, it's the last time we see it. <laughs> I hope, you know, I, 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 I confess I did not watch all the credits of this film. I do wonder if there was a thing at the end saying no pugs were harmed during the filming of this. Oh, oh well, that brings us to the cat. <laughs> yeah, don't get you started on the cat. The cat is just. All right. So one of the weird, like, dead ends that this movie has yeah. because it tries to be faithful to the book but then doesn't. Right, you will notice that I did not include the cat in my plot description because it has no <laughs> bearing whatsoever on anything. But please go ahead. Uh, but Well, because in the, in the book, mm-hmm. because his mentat is killed, right. Harkonnen kind of uh, recruits the Atreides mentat yes. whose name is... Oh, damn it. Atreides mentat. <laughs> And, and hooks him. He poisons him. Yeah, he, he poisons him. He gets him hooked on something that if he, he, it, he feeds him the antidote as well so that if he ever leaves, he'll die. Right. That's a weird way. It's, it seems like overcomplicated, by the yeah. way. But they sort of try to do this. What happens is they have him like all like, you know, strapped in some kind of chair. And then they bring in a hairless white cat. <laughs> this is, this has to be Lynch. Like it's being tortured. Really, like it's in a box, kind of, and they tell him. Too fear. You have too to fear was the name of the mentat. Too fear. They tell too too fear, too fear. You have to cooperate with us, or the cat will die. I, literally, like. And it, and then they do a close up of the cat, and there is a rat, <laughs> duct taped, 
to the cat side. We I don't <laughs> on a, like I, among the absurd lines of dialogue that I had written down was one of the Harkonnens saying, "We brought you a little cat to fear," and it's just like. <laughs> It's just a horrible dialogue. It's just Oh, and then we I don't think we see Two Fear again. No, we don't. That's why I didn't put it in the plot. <laughs> it, it, he's completely meaningless after this. So it's it doesn't matter. Yes. It's just So I actually did think I need to watch to the end of the credits to make sure that this cat was not harmed. <laughs> but then I was so angry at the movie by the end of it that I couldn't waste any more time on it, so I didn't watch it. I'm just going to hope and pray. I, I believe Lynch is actually something of an animal person himself. Yeah. Like one of those I could assume that no one was actually legitimate. The cat doesn't look... It looks uncomfortable. Well, yeah, well, you would, would be too if you were shorn. So, yes, I think that's fair. It, well, no, I believe that's actually a naturally hairless. Oh, really? Movie. Oh, okay. I think that is a, that's one of uh, the... I can't remember the name of the breed but they are naturally hairless cats okay i believe that was one of them but it's like it's in this weird bo- whatever i'm hope hoping that it was short-term discomfort and someone's very beloved pet <laughs> who now has to gets to dine out i hope dined out for the rest of their lives oh yeah my cat was in dune Fun story yeah <laughs> oh yeah my dune. cat was the pivotal <laughs> character in dune yep it seems like another maybe uh, cocaine <laughs> you know. Oh, that is sufficiently. Let me just wait. That is a sufficiently weird moment that I actually did think Lynch did that, but that's it, it's an interesting question to ask. That's true. Okay, let's keep going. Let's close with a. F- hey, because you know what the next part of this movie is? The next part. Let me do the jump that yes. they do to get to this to the last uh, sort of fifteen minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. In the following two standard years, <laughs> Paul and Chani's love grew, which is the all- that is. That is the actual narration to explain the jump cut from escaping to the desert to whatever. It's just... Maybe no one else finds that as funny or as weird as we do, but like even in the context of the movie, it's like, what? Why? What? Of all the things to tell us? The only reason I think they told us that is because otherwise you would not necessarily believe that Kyle MacLachlan and Sean Young actually liked each other. Or we're in the or same we're in the room, same room even during the filming. Yes, I mean, and yeah, we will we will talk about this more a little later. So let's get to the final act. Better call Paul. The emperor arrives on Arrakis, kills the Beast Raban. And by the way, when I say the Beast Raban, that is literally how that character is listed in the credits. And scolds the Baron for his incompetence. Alia shows up, bringing a message from Paul that the emperor is fucked. Behind Atomics, Sandworms, and the Mother of All Sandstorms, Paul, his Fedekin, and the rest of the Fremen forces overwhelm the Emperor and capture the Emperor's entourage. Aaliyah expels the Baron from the fortress, and he is gobbled up by a sandworm, which is a deviation from the plot in the book. Paul lectures the Emperor and then meets Fade Rautha in combat. There's a fight. Paul wins, destroying Fade in the end by using his weirding powers without a module, which is a badass move. Everyone acknowledges now that he's the Kwisatz Haderach, which will bring peace and love to the universe, which is slightly different than I remember the perception of Paul from the novel. Then he makes it rain (laughs) on Arrakis, thereby rendering superfluous everything the Fremen have been doing for centuries. Anna, I guess we need to ask, is this book unfilmable? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is it Lynch or is it the combination of a visionary director and the studio system? God, the rain thing is so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. I want to talk about it for a second, which is to say this movie, in addition to all of its other flaws, breaks a real, probably one of the primary rules of science fiction, which is that it's suddenly becomes fantasy mm. there's suddenly magic right. involved right i mean and there can to be fair feel- there can be science fantasy but like yes. the, the rules have to be internally consistent in whatever you're yes. you're, you're watching or it, exactly yeah. exactly exactly yeah. like star wars introduces the idea of the force right. they explain it mm. you know there is sort of this weird quasi scientific you know which everyone hated it, i would right? add but yeah yeah but they it's in the universe it's in universe right. this is just well, uh, you know, I mean, you talk about Deus as Machina, right? Yeah. Like, it makes no, also makes no sense. It just, I can't even say. Yeah. It makes no sense. It breaks the rules of science fiction. It gives the movie an ending that I can't imagine Herbert would have been very happy oh, with. Oh, no, he would have been Yeah. Although I think, was he a consulting on the script? I can't remember now. I feel like he did have a role in the movie, but I have no idea, like, what that, what that would have looked like. 
to get back to whether or not the uh, book is unfilmable. Yeah. You know, there is a lot in it Mm -hmm. that is interior Mm -hmm. and that Herbert has the skill in this book. He's not as successful in the following books, which now I have read, of making interior, again, revelations, discussions, monologues, fairly engrossing. Yeah. Yeah, like you're, you're, he gives them visual texture. Mm-hmm. Y- you are drawn along. There's some tension. That's the stuff you can't film, right? I mean, Villeneuve is such a gorgeous director. Like, there's part of me that feels like I will enjoy my time in the theater no matter what. Right. There's some cute actors. Yes, yes, there are. Yeah, and some beautiful actors. I mean, that's a good-looking cast. Like, yeah. Let's just... You know, it's a better it's a better looking cast than the the one that in the eighty four film yeah. yeah yeah so I mean I think it's going to be visually stunning mm-hmm. right and it's just going to be very interesting I I, I am encouraged that Villeneuve is only planning on like half of the book is going to yes. be in the film that actually does seem to me like a promising sign because it it shows that he understands that if we're going to do this right the plot has to develop in a certain way and if we did it the full thing you'd have a five hour movie and so. Hopefully this works because then we can see the second half. And I had some more things listed here about what didn't make sense. But again, I'm just going to, for the sake of time, not mention them. I will say that I think one reason to have some hope for a Villeneuve's movie is that imagine this film coming out today Mm -hmm. or the options, the the same kind of set of characters, Mm -hmm. you know, making it, not Villeneuve, or even just like 10 years ago. Imagine it coming out at a time when audiences have shown themselves willing to follow the MCU down incredible rabbit holes. Right. Right? They've shown themselves willing to watch science fiction that has esoteric backstory Mm -hmm. that they may not understand or doesn't come across the first time. And studios have been fairly good about respecting the best of big budget science fiction movies today and Marvel movies, comic book movies, respect the audience's intelligence. Right? Like, Suicide Squad did not, one of the problems with mm-hmm. it. But they create room for the audience to do, do its own, like, narrative work. Right. And I wonder if that would have made a difference. It's possible. That and fewer rails of coke, I agree. I agree. So I think Villeneuve, though, he's making that movie in a context where, where studios are willing to take a risk that the audience will put shit together. So We will find out. It's an interesting test, but let me put it this way. It it will be props to Villeneuve if this does become a good film, because clearly this is not an easy one to make. All right. Dan? Anna? Is there IR in this movie? Anna, I can find IR without a weirding module. (laughs) Though I won't deny that helps. (laughs) So, yes, there is IR in this film. Much of it, which did sort of was present in the book already, which we talked about, but um, it's worth bringing up again. First, the very concept of weaponized interdependence. So we talked about this before, but this is the power held when one controls the sort of hub of a network. And in the world of Dune, control of Melange, the spice, is network power. And indeed, it's explicitly said both in the book and in this film, one of the quotes that that appears is, the people who can destroy a thing, they control it. And that is why uh, sort of motivates Paul's strategy in terms of trying to control the spice and trying to sabotage spice production. Furthermore, one of the things that Lynch does make clear, which we talked about before, is why the emperor fears the duke, which leads to questions about individual leadership strategy and diplomacy. The duke is a threat because he is innovating on the battlefield with this weirding (laughs) module, which... I'm just going to take that exposition as given and not actually talk about what we see when we see the wording module, because having seen the wording module, I would not stop laughing. I think that's how he would incapacitate the soldiers. The Emperor Sardaukot would look at this, they would start laughing hysterically and be unable to fire their weapons, because it looks bad. It is not a good way of of converting this to film. Shall I drop in here my description? Describe the wording module. It It looks like a garlic press attached to a gaming headset. (laughs) <laughs> and, and imagine the garlic press just coming straight out of your, like, Adam's apple. Mm-hmm. It's just a garlic press. And then there's, like, a microphone. And it has, it has something to do with sound. So. Yeah. The one thing I will point out is that while that explanation of the emperor's fears are clear, I, I feel compelled to point out that the duke never expresses any hostility to the emperor in this film. 
And so this does seem like it's a classic security dilemma issue where, yes, the Duke is augmenting his power. The Duke doesn't necessarily intend to attack the Emperor, but the Emperor sees that augmentation of power and perceives it as a threat, and that leads to an escalation and so forth. So that's a, a tricky thing. There is stuff that the movie did seem to clarify plot-wise, which also has some interesting IR, which is the Spacing Guild is clearly the real power behind the throne and behind almost everything. And they are the ones who have the accurate threat perception that Paul is the person they need to kill in order for them to control the spice. And it is therefore very interesting at the very end of the film to see that it is the Spacing Guild that recognizes the shift in the distribution of power, as it were, and appease Paul, recognizing that there is no way they can do anything without Paul's permission. So they go from a strategy of trying to preempt and kill Paul to a strategy of pure appeasement because that's the only way that they can continue. But this leads us... To the next question. Anna? Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Dan. Sometimes the market. <laughs> That's all I can say. I will say this is a case where the audience has spoken and the audience is wise. There was a reason. The audience is wise. There was a reason that this film bombed. Yeah. The wisdom of crowds. Yes, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what we got here. I, I, I can go a little further on it, which is to say it's an interesting example of being talked down to not working. Bring in my friend Adorno here, which is, in theory, this is the, the kind of art he would say is made for the masses, and the masses would eat up, which is this, incre- this pablum, right? Yeah. This like incredibly condescending, plotless, you know, stuff that you don't have to think while you're watching. Mm-hmm. Guess what? <sighs> Sometimes people can tell that and uh, they reject it as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's bad movies out there. We talked about the Tomorrow War being an example of something that's easy to consume and it does fit into that model that Adorno has. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, market worked. Dan, yeah. No, the way I would put it is that Tomorrow War is, Tomorrow War is bad fast food. This yes. is bad gourmet food. And I would argue that bad fast food is actually better than bad gourmet food. This is a wonderful that analogy, analogy, Dan. I think you're Thank right. You. Yeah. I think you're right. I think we finally yeah. nailed it. This is like a molecular gastronomy gone incredibly yes. wrong. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. What's that sound, Dan? I, what I, is it's it? debris, Anna. Oh, my God, it's debris. <gasps> We've entered the debris field, which is where we say the things about the movie that we didn't get to say earlier. That we've, I think we've talked about a lot. But, Dan, do you have anything left to I say? I have a few things. First of all, I, again, one of the other reasons I'm disappointed is that David Lynch is a filmmaker who genuinely has the capacity to scare the bejesus out of me. Twin Peaks scared me, I remember watching it. There were legitimately scary moments. Mulholland Drive scared the fuck out of me. There should have been things that scared me in this film and did not, and it was disappointing. The only thing that actually disturbed me watching this film was the cat and Aaliyah using her weirding voice. That was actually legitimately unnerving. By the way, Aaliyah was played by Alicia Witt, who winds up being an actress that you know set a significant career oh, after yeah. that. Second, some of the dialogue, sweet Jesus. We've talked about some of it, but but you know the worst was the the stuff between Chani and Paul. At one point, Chani says, "You were calling my name. It frightened me." It's just bad. And this leads to my next point, which is I feel sorry for Sean Young. Sean Young was an interesting actress, but between this and Blade Runner, just got the shit end of the stick in terms of roles. Because Shani is in some ways, at least in, in both the book and in this movie, a thankless role. And in this film, I think she was actually marginalized even further. And so... You know, yes, it's a name actress, but but Sean Young was given nothing to do, and I legitimately feel sorry that like you know she had to do this. The one thing that did crack me up is the I love the '80s credits in the end when it, the film ends. They they show the credit sequence, and it's like all the actors turning to the camera, and it was legitimately <laughs> funny. Um, I don't think it was intended to be funny, but it's actually hysterical, and it's the most '80s thing ever. I think that's it. You know, Anna, what about you? I'll repeat a few things. One is the creatures hold up. Yeah. The battle scenes do not. But I think the creatures and even like the Harkonnen grossness, Mm -hmm. like I said, it's so gross that it's almost good. Mm -hmm. And it is, I don't want to say well done, but it's fucking detailed. That's for (laughs) sure. The pugs, I... I just, it made me laugh once I started seeing the pugs. They're in multiple scenes, basically. <laughs> so 
Just don't don't have any idea what happened there or why. But what's that pug doing there? Maybe <laughs> I, you know, pugs should appear randomly more in people's lives. I would accept a pug right there now. You go. I already and I mentioned the soldier wearing the beer hat, which I want to believe was done intentionally. And then I meant to mention this earlier. There is the sequence where they go to see a spice harvester. Yeah, it's also in the book. Mm-hmm. I think that was David Lynch in the spice harvester. Oh really? Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I guess we could solve that question maybe by looking it up right now. But maybe I I did look at IMDb, and Lynch wasn't listed in the credits as an actor. But it's a very like it's it's very he has that straight up hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he also has that weird like toneless affect that Lynch Mm -hmm. has, you know. And then I kind of liked the aesthetic of it, which is which is which is unique, I think in science fiction movies. Yeah, no one's tried to replicate it. it. That's true. I would describe it as Star Wars meets 1980s Steakhouse. <laughs> like a lot of leatherette, you know? I think the parts of the aesthetic that I liked were I think the retro aspects of it. Like that very first scene where the Emperor meets the Spacing Guild, there's a scene where the Spacing Guild comes in and it almost looks like a train coming into the station, which yeah. I actually thought that was effective. But yes. So I think that we have said all we can say. I think we have mined that there. spice enough. I mean, yes. I could say more, but <laughs> it would lose in, you would lose interest much as I lost interest in this movie. I it was real it was actually real torture for me to get to the end. I I'm so impressed that you watched the credits. Anna, let's let's move to Oh, <laughs> you really should watch the credits where they show the actors, I have to say. You will you okay. will get a good laugh at it. But right. Anna, let's move to something that we both actually like, which is Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. There we go. Yes, we're going to be discussing Ted Lasso episode four. Uh, it is an interesting episode, I think. And if you haven't seen it, well, here there be spoilers. Yes. Might want to end your listening pleasure now. Okay, so this is a Christmas episode. Very now. much so. It has some specific references to other special Christmas episodes and movies, including It's a Wonderful Life, A Christmas Story, and Oh Boy, Love Actually. Which I have refused to watch <gasps> over the years. I know, I know. Um, it's one of those things, it's kind of like Buckaroo Bonsai. <laughs> like, I'm just like, some people hate it, some people like it. I don't want to get in that debate. I don't care. Like, I, I don't care enough, enough about my time is precious. Anyway, it is a Christmas episode and just a rough sketch of the plot. Everyone has plans for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Keely and Roy are going to do Sexy Christmas, which sounds pretty cool. Actually. Sexy Christmas sounds pretty sexy, uh, yeah. Yeah, Rebecca is going to go to a party at Elton John's. The Higginses are going to host an open house for the players whose families are far away. Ted is going to FaceTime with his son, which already sounds sad, mm-hmm. I'm going to say. But this being television, none of that happens exactly like it's supposed to. Keely and Roy wind up going on a house-to-house search for a dentist for little Phoebe and her halitosis. Apparently, dentists are as hard to find in England as you would think. <laughs> The Higgins's open house turns into a team-wide meetup. Rebecca rescues Ted from a night of drinking alone to take him out to play Santa with a bunch of under-Santa'd children. There is actually not a lot of plot here or character development, except we do see Roy back down from violence against a child. And he does that with a lot of grace mm-hmm. and very quickly, unlike perhaps the, the old Roy might have. I also want to give a few behind the scenes notes here. It was intended to be in August. It, like it's not like oh we filmed a Christmas episode and we didn't we couldn't wait to show it to you so we're showing to you in August. The creative team said they wanted to release a Christmas special early in homage to the troubled 2020 holiday season, <laughs> during which so many families and friends were kept apart because of the pandemic. Hmm. The director uh, called the episode another chance at Christmas cheer mm. since we all missed it last year. And it also was one of the first episodes they filmed after they got renewed. And it is a standalone episode, which is why it's not connected in any way to the rest of the season. I think that explains some stuff. And, you know, just to talk about it a little bit, we spoke about the episode after you saw it and after I saw it. And it got to me. I'm going to say that. Like, it got to me emotionally pretty hard. It also made me laugh. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm a little worried about our, our show. So, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, no, I know what you... So, so I, I think we've been in agreement that season two of Ted Lasso up till now has not been on par with season one. The first three episodes I did not think were as good. They weren't bad. I want to be very clear. I've been enjoying the show. But they were not like the sort of uplift that I'd expected. 
This episode, I think, was as good. But I understand your concern because it does lean on the schmaltz. It's a Christmas episode, on the other hand. And I, I will say this. As someone who is Jewish... I like Christmas episodes much the same way I actually enjoy Christmas Eve, which is I don't want any Christmas stuff in my house, but I like going to other houses and seeing them <laughs> decorated with Christmas. I, I appreciate the holiday as a sort of detached right. observer, and in some ways that's how I enjoyed this episode. I do think it was the best episode of the season. I am a little worried that this was uh, the Doctor does not appear in this episode, and I'm hoping that's just a coincidence because yeah, it's because it's, it's standalone. Right. The, the Doctor was an interesting character, but at the same time, I'm worried about the Doctor potentially creating issues for the show. But there are other things that I liked. <laughs> I like the line, you know, when they were talking about Elton John. I think it's Ted who says, "Hold me closer, tiny dancer, prancer, and blitzen." I also liked one of the soccer players saying, "You know, Anna, I, I much like the French. Having a beautiful woman in the room is a good thing." And you have not seen Love Actually, so I'm not going to go too much into this. This is easily the best riff I have seen on Love Love Actually, and it's actually a much better use of the technique or the sort of plot device. And so that was careful. And I also particularly liked how, in the end, Phoebe says, you know, you better be nice, otherwise this one's going to be mean to you, and you see Roy growl, and then and this one too, and <laughs> Keely apologizes, because, you know, it's entirely consistent with her her character. So, um, so yes. I yes. Have a, so I have a question about the doctor, your doctor concerns, which is, are you concerned even though you know that this is a standalone episode that was filmed before that plot got going? Maybe, just because again, it was so much better. Uh, this, this episode is better, mm-hmm. and so my, it's just a correlation question. Episodes with the doctor, not that good. Episode without the doctor, very good. So, I'm hoping that's, yeah, I, that that's, uh, it, it's not a deeply thought thing, it's just a concern. No, I think that you might be onto something, which is that the, my concern, we ha- neither of us had said this explicitly, but my concern about the show is that it becomes just another sitcom. Right. right? And the plot device of a you know new doctor coming into town is something, you know, it's not quite the, the cousin moving in, mm-hmm. but it could be abused that It way. could be. I mean, it g- c- Shows have introduced new characters and done so in a way that adds to the uh, to the richness of the, the the of the narrative. So we will see. I will also say, without talking about it, I have seen the next episode, and it is also of a higher quality. So, rel- and that one did feature the Doctor. So I'm relatively optimistic. But we will we will okay. see going forward. I, I'm pacing myself. Okay, good for you. So. Yeah. so what I like, you know, this show is about families of choice, <laughs> and I appreciate that thought right now a lot in my life uh Mm. that the idea of families of choice and this episode probably leaned harder into that than any other episode yeah and it pulled it off i mean i got teary about the higginses yes too you know like just having the players like one play after another show up until it gets comical Mm -hmm. but also like it's you know, clearly a sign that the team has bonded in a way under Ted that they haven't before. Right. Although, there right. was one question I had. You you said the whole team showed up. Jamie didn't show up, correct? Oh, no, not the whole team. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to say the okay, whole team. Yeah. I meant, like, Most of the everyone, team, though, not, does show up. Most, most of the, of the team, team. Like, a ton of the The non-Brits show up, up, I think, would be the way to put it. The non-Brits show up, which is a lot up, of the team. Which is a lot of the team. I always appreciate their little nods to, like, imperialism and colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when Sam is like, yeah, we, we don't do Christmas, yeah, you know, yeah. like. <laughs> what I liked, one other thing I did like, which is this was an inverse of the normal dynamic of the show, which is Ted bucking up Rebecca. This was the reverse. And that was actually lovely to see. And as far as what did we learn, I'm going to I'm going to see if I can do this for every episode of the show, which is good dads are good. <laughs> That's what we learned. Good dads are good. But Dan, you probably... I I think we learned two things. First, apparently only, like, British children opened the door on Christmas Eve because, like, the number of times that people were knocking on doors and a child opened it was was surprisingly high, and I don't think that would be the case in an American household. That's just pointing out. But I think that the most important thing we learned in this episode is that footballers are children in the best sense of that (laughs) word. I think the part I liked about the Higgins plot was seeing the footballers acting as overgrown children. And it makes sense. Yeah. If you are a professional football player, it means you are being play, you know, paid to play a kid's game. And, you know, that is a pretty awesome way to live. And so there was a sense of joy in the footballers in terms of their celebration, in terms of enjoying Higgins's hospitality that, that was legitimately nice and not schmaltzy in the slightest. It was honest. Oh, I, 
I thought of something that I learned, I which is antibiotics can cause bad breath. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's very important, actually. Yeah. I mean, to no, know that. No, that's true. Speaking of learning things, just to review very quickly what we're going to be doing in the future, uh, we're going to be doing Reminiscence very soon. We're going to be doing the Fantasy Island reboot, and we are going to be doing Lawrence Wright's The End of October. If you are not already a patron, please become a patron. It helps us pay Karen, who then is able to put kibble on the table for little Mm -hmm. Alwyn. So that is important. It's also important that you just rate and review the show, tell your friends, whatever. We liked having you here. We hope you come again. Until next time. Keep this channel open for more.